Our reading for the day comes from Acts 2, 41 through 47a. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKA Church. We've been in the middle of this process of formation, talking about the ways that God forms us as individuals on a journey on the way, the way of Jesus, but also as, as this process by which God forms us into community, into being, into the people of God through whom God brings the kingdom into being. How are we formed? To what are we formed? With whom are we formed? These are the questions that are on our minds. Last week, we spent time talking about Pentecost, the miracle of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit poured herself down onto a collected body of God's people and gave them power and gave them this incredible ability to speak, to share, to pour out the truth of the good news to many people in many different languages. Now, the miracle at Pentecost has often been misunderstood by our modern individualistic culture as merely an intimate experience of an individual receiving the Spirit for their own connection to God. I say merely because when we do receive the Holy Spirit, it is intimate, it is powerful, and it does connect us deeply to God. But the context of that scripture shows us that it is not merely for those purposes that the Holy Spirit pours herself out on us. It is a collective purpose. It is so that in that intimacy and in that power, in that presence of God, we may be drawn with the people gathered because the Holy Spirit doesn't come to someone alone on a mountaintop or alone in the wilderness, but on the gathered people of God seeking her, seeking her power. But when she does, when she does come down on that collective, it's a kind of baptism an immersion in the presence of God so that made new, newly connected, newly powerful, newly close to God and one another, we may then be sent out. We may gather more in towards this project of love. We may share our power and our collective wisdom. We may offer what God has offered to us back to each other and beyond. In the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist, he's baptizing people in the river. And people are amazed, but he says, there will be someone who comes after me. He's talking about Jesus here. He will baptize you not with water, but with fire and the Holy Spirit. And this comes true at Pentecost, this baptism, this immersion. Baptism is a way of marking a kind of new life moving from death into life, submerged in others, cleansed by them, emerging new. And so in Pentecost, we have a kind of baptism by the Holy Spirit with tongues of fire, as the scripture says, a rushing wind, this wild presence of God, and the collective body saying, I'm in. That's what baptism is about, by the way. It's about saying, I'm in, either as a person saying, I'm in, I'm in on this project, I'm in on this community, I'm in for the kingdom of God. Make me new, bring me new life. Or when we baptize infants, it's about saying, you're in. You're in on this project. You have the right to be here. You are part of this family, and we imbue you with the spirit of God and the collective of the body of Christ. Church is behind you every step of the way. And so this passage today begins with 
that ongoing baptism. The collective has been baptized on Pentecost, but what do they do? What do they do with that Holy Spirit, that wind and fire that gave them so much closeness and connection and power? They pour it right back out into the world. They preach and they teach and they share with people what God has been doing. And when people receive those messages, the text says they were baptized also. Thousands of people were baptized. They ritualized this process of saying, I'm in. Take me with you. Send me out. I am in. And in this, we see the pouring out of God's power. She loves to share. She loves to be generous. And through God's generosity is that intimacy and closeness that God pours out her power so that we can be connected in this process and share with others. So what was all of that power for, this power that multiplies, this power that is given so that it may be given again. In Acts, that power is all for the early, budding, beginning church. Now, I don't think that this is what the gathered disciples were expecting when they received power. Perhaps they thought that the power would come in some other form. It would come as a way of conquering. Maybe they hadn't gotten the message yet from Jesus about that. Maybe they thought the power would make them well-known or famous or, or give them the ability to, um, to gather all the tools at their society's disposal to change things. That would have been a little bit more in line with Jesus' teachings. And yet Jesus subverts things again and again and again in the same way that Jesus' power brings him to the cross. This power brings the church underground. This is a sharing of God's power, sharing which is characteristic of God. In this same series we've been following Peter, we saw when Jesus shared the miracle of walking on water with Peter. We saw last week the pouring of the Holy Spirit, the sharing of that power. And so how now do we see the sharing and generosity among God's people taking place in this early church? Not a powerful conqueror, not a direct challenger to the empire by being an empire of the day, but a lowly, underground, growing like wild community sharing in the power of the Spirit of God. And that sharing is key. So what did people share with one another once they had received the Holy Spirit, the power of God? Turns out they shared pretty much everything. The scriptures say all who believed were together and had all things in common. If that wasn't clear enough, it goes on to say they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. There are a lot of themes of friendship in this passage about the early church. The ancient concepts of friendship developed by Aristotle and Plato held a lot of these same ideas, that friends were things who had things in common. Friends were perhaps even people who held property in common. According to ancient philosophers, that were shaping the days of the early church. Friendship was built on three things. One, goodwill. A general orientation towards the well-being of the other. An investment in the well-being and thriving of another person. Two, recognition. An appreciation that a friend had offered you their goodwill a recognition of this, an appreciation. And then three, reciprocity, offering the same back, receiving the goodwill of another, and reciprocating. This was not for one's own gain, although it did benefit both parties. But friendship was this genuine love, affection, and provision for another, a receiving of that back in reciprocity, and a recognition of the joy and beauty of that connection and mutuality. 
This was friendship in the ancient world. And what we see in the early church is an exponential growth of that friendship, friendship which goes beyond the social class, beyond the social strata, beyond the limitations of the community's expectations culturally. Friendship with God, friendship with others, friendship with all the fellow believers, Because in the ancient world, those friendships were generally bound by social status and wealth. But the early church defied this. And how exactly did they defy the social strata and the divisions based on wealth? They sold all their stuff. When it says that they would sell their uh, possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds, the text seems to imply, through scholarship, that those possessions were not only material objects or, um, you know, the wealth that had accumulated in the home, but perhaps land itself, that any landowners who wanted to be a part of this early community would sell their land, and the proceeds would go to any who had need within the community. They were throwing one another. They took their investments out of the empire, out of the world as it was, even if it was serving them especially if it was serving them. They divested from the empire and the ways of the world and invested in friendship, in the friendship of the community of believers. There are many who point to this time of proto-socialism in the church. It is certainly a communalism. And though we don't have many documentation uh, pieces from the early Christian church, We have just these snippets in Acts. We actually do have uh, documented evidence of similar communities that were doing the same. The Essenes, for instance. John the Baptist was a part of the Essenes. The Essenes were a community that had deep influence on the early church. And the Essenes uh, were influenced by Christianity. The Essenes kept better records, apparently. And so we know that Essenes would actually live together. They shared their wages. They had a common pool of all of their income. They were communalists in a very real and material sense. And though we don't know if the early Christian church practiced that exactly, we do know that this passage seems to indicate they must have done something very similar. We also know that some of the most important sites for these stories we have in the early church are near the Essene quarter in the city of Jerusalem. And so there was a lot of crossover there. And so we have this picture of the early church, even though and even as it was persecuted, even though and even as it was small and growing, living together in community of friendship in a radical way that had important material consequences and consequences as well. It would have been shameful in their society to sell all their wealth and pool it or to join a community who was not delineating wealth through patronage or through um, kind of generational family lines but through chosen family through abundance and through need they were smashing class boundaries now as i bring this up I'm wondering if any of you have just like a weird, uncomfortable feeling in your gut. Like, cool story, Jonah. It's like very inspiring for someone else in another time and place. I have a really weird feeling talking about it, actually, because it is so outside of our norms. It's really weird to think about pooling our wages or all living together, selling our possessions, and only having communal belongings. And it makes me curious what that weird feeling in the gut is. It feels to me like scarcity. It feels to me like this sense that I don't actually have enough to give, and maybe y'all don't have enough to give me either. There will never be enough for all of us, so I have to take what I can get. 
This is the logic of capitalism. This is the logic of market consumption. This is the logic of competitive markets that say that we actually all can't have enough, and so the only way for me to have close to enough is for me to accumulate without regard to you. There is a deep and pervasive sickness of scarcity in our culture creation. But that flies in the face of God's logic of abundance. And in fact, God tells us that it is when we are feeling that scarcity, when we feel like we don't have enough, that we actually ought to offer ourselves all the more. I believe this, and I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I don't even want to believe it. I'm like, okay, give me some different logic, please, because when I am feeling scarce, when I am feeling like I don't have enough, I just want to batten down the hatches. I want to pull the shades. I want to retreat, and I want to take care of my own self. That's just me, though. But I remember during these conversations, during these thought experiments, a time that I was living with my sister and nephew, Many of this community might know Mara and Grant. And uh, I was actually living, I was kind of on their couch for the summer, trying to explore Milwaukee. They had been so generous to me, opening their home to me, letting me move in with my nun so that they could offer what they had, which in many ways were seeds for this community, which is partly what I'm trying to offer back. Grant was two and a half at the time. And I have no context for this, but he was having a really hard day. And he wasn't feeling really great about himself. He was, he was struggling, and Mara was asking him about it. And it was adorable, so I was taking a video. Here is this clip of Grant. Or give you hugs? I'm just having a hard time. You're having a hard time today? But I'm not. But I'm, I'm a share. I'm a good sharer. You're a good sharer? Uh-huh. That's good. If you didn't catch all of that, Grant said, I'm just having a hard time. But I'm a good sharer, though. And it was it's so charming, and it's so sweet, and it's also just really profound. Because I feel that way a lot, that first part. I'm just having a hard time right now. But it actually makes me want to turn internal. It wants me to say, I'm having a hard time right now, so I can't actually deal with anyone else. I'm having a hard time right now, so I need to focus on me. And there are some ways in which it's true. But there are some ways in which that is a trap and a lie. It actually is helpful to remember to be a good sharer when you're having a hard time. It's helpful to remember that you are a good sharer, that that's a good quality you have. You were made to be generous because you were made in the image of our God who pours out their power constantly. You were made in that same image to share generously even when you're having a hard time, perhaps especially so. This is happening for me literally today. Like today as I'm standing here talking to you. I'm having a hard time. It's been a hard week. And there's a lot of me that just wants to pull back, to run away, to phone it in. But as is God's timing, I got a really powerful reminder with this sermon that actually when I'm having a hard time, I am called to share, to give what I have, knowing that it will come back to me in abundance, knowing that that is how it all works, that we're all having a hard time sometimes. But we're good sharers. And it is in our generosity that we are healed it is an act of faith in God to share, to give generously when we are feeling like we don't have enough. 
and God will provide for us. Through our own generosity, God shows up and provides. And I mean that at every level. I mean that emotionally and spiritually, which is what I'm experiencing right now in this moment. But I also mean that relationally, physically, materially, financially. God provides to us through our own generosity as an act of faith. Now I want to pause for an important caveat here. This idea, this truth of God's provision through our own generosity and giving, this truth has been abused. Sometimes people have told us to give ourselves away, even into having nothing left, or to deplete ourselves materially and emotionally for others, or to give financially, promising that the money will come back to us even when we've given too much already. God respects our boundaries. God wants to provide for us, not deplete us. And God doesn't want to line the pockets of rich televangelists in airplanes. However, like most lies from the devil, this is actually a profound truth that has been manipulated and twisted to hurt us. The thing missing in that, in that uh, equation is reciprocity, that fundamental part of friendship. It's mutuality. We are not asked to give and give and give in spaces that give nothing back to us. We are asked to give, trusting that we will be given back. And we are expected to receive back. Now, receiving back might not happen immediately, and it might not happen in the ways that we expected. But giving and generosity is exponential. It does produce more of itself. Your generosity should produce more generosity in you as well as generosity in others. The truth is that God does provide to us through our generosity, our giving ourselves away. And God provides for us through our provision to others, personally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and materially and financially. It reminds me, of the incredible privilege I had to spend some time at Standing Rock. In the fall of 2016, Standing Rock was under attack. Native lands that were sacred were under attack as an oil pipeline was going to be coming through, potentially poisoning the water. This is where we have the most recent iteration of that cry Miniwakoni, water is life. So I had the opportunity to go to Standing Rock, to stand, to be, to hold my presence with thousands of others who were defending that land. There was a lot of potential for scarcity there. The land was being taken away, people were under attack, spiritual and communal identity was being uh, eroded and damaged. There were masses of communities gathered who were experiencing violence and exploitation and threat. That could have been a real scary place to be. That could have been a real place of emptiness and scarcity. People really could have turned away from one another for their own self-preservation. And yet, people came. People were there, they gathered, they called out, and people came. Many people spent a lot of money and resources to get there. Many people showed up with very little to offer, but they offered what they had to the collective. And all throughout this camp, there were tents. And those tents were an alternative economy where anywhere you went, you could get what you needed. There were tents with food in them, many tents with many different kinds of stews and breads and produce and salads and all kinds of people nourishing one another. 
There were tents with warm winter clothes because it was getting late in the fall and we were in the Dakotas. It was really cold. And many people had been there since summer and so didn't have what they needed when they came. And yet people who did come, people who did have something to offer, poured in. And so there were tents full of like snow gear and warm winter coats. There were tents with extra tents. Tents on tents on tents. It was a radical new economy where instead of trying to barter with one another, instead of trying to to have commerce with one another, instead of trying to profit off of one another, everyone just threw down. This is what I have. What do you have? What do you need? And you would walk around and get what you needed. And this wasn't just material. In the midst of people experiencing deep spiritual violence, people were holding healing circles. Water was under attack in that very land, and people were leading and being led in water ceremonies. There was a community of radical generosity and abundance. Not scarcity, but giving. And I believe that all of that was an act of faith. And the, the produce of that, the fruits of that, were beautiful and sometimes delicious, literally, and nourishing in a thousand different ways. The connection that we all experienced with one another because we came together on the premise of generosity was life-changing. I think about it regularly, years later. It is by giving to others that we receive all we need. The power of the Spirit is to give us the courage towards abundance, the courage to trust in the truth of that gift, the courage to give personally. When you don't feel like you have anything to offer, offer your friendship. Spiritually, when you don't feel like your faith is all that strong, offer to lead or to accompany others spiritually. When you don't feel like you have anything to offer physically, find some way to put yourself on the line by showing up where you are needed, offering your labor, your gifts, your talents. Materially, when you feel like you just don't have enough, look for what it is you can give away. Give. Give with trust and hope and anticipation. These are difficult tasks. So how, how did the early church do it? Was it just that baptism and then, ooh, they were ready? No. The baptism was important. The saying, I'm in. The choices to be included in the family of God. Those were an important first step. And as anyone added to their numbers, that was the first step they took. A commitment saying, I'm here, I'm in. Let's go. And if you want to learn more about baptism, if that's not something you've experienced but you'd like to, hit me up. I would love to talk to you about it. We need the Spirit, and that baptism infuses us with the Spirit, helps us to feel her presence and connect with her. But it didn't end there. They didn't just get the Spirit and then be asked to be generous miraculously. The Spirit empowered them to live the kinds of lives that would produce radical generosity in them. So, what are the practices that produce in us a community of radical generosity and abundance? The scriptures tell us that there are four fundamental things that the early church did to build this community. We're going to put them on the screen. The life of the early church included devotion to the teachings, koinonia, which is also fellowship, breaking bread, and the prayers or worship. These were the things that built the life of the church together. And through those practices, by the faith of God, by the faith in God, 
and by the power of the Holy Spirit, those practices over time produced a radical community of generosity and abundance. So let's go through those four parts. First, the teaching. Devoting yourself to the teachings is about seeking to know God. These new disciples, most of whom had not met Jesus before he ascended into heaven, were trying to learn the way, the way of Jesus, the way towards the kingdom, the way of anti-empire. There's an understanding that they were learning and that they would never arrive. Because among those who had never met Jesus, there were the many who had. There were the ones who were close. There was Peter. But devoting themselves to these teachings meant seeking after a God they knew they would never know completely and they knew it was worth trying to know. So they trusted that new meaning was being imparted to them always. They read uh, the stories or probably listened to the stories. They talked, they debated, they tried to understand When they thought they understood, they shared with others. When they realized they didn't, they asked more questions. They trusted that the wisdom of God could come to them from one another. And so in devoting themselves to the teachings, they devoted themselves to one another, to learning from each other, which moves them into this place of fellowship, koinonia. Koinonia is the Greek word. We often translate it as fellowship, But fellowship has become such a churchy word to me that I don't really know what it means. I know that most church buildings have fellowship halls, fellowship coffee hours. That doesn't sound super compelling to me, so I wanted to know more. What does this actually mean? What is the heart of this if we have just the image of it? Koinonia means what is shared in common on the basis of shared relationship. The root of the word koinonia actually is kind of an opposite of the word holiness. It's what is ordinary, what is common. It's this idea that common life together can actually join us to one another. This positive connection where we feel intimately joined to one another not through anything particularly profound, but through the ordinariness of life. This shared project of pursuing the teachings is actually what brings us into a life. And in that list of four, those four things, the teachings, koinonia, breaking bread, and the prayers, they're kind of split into pairs. And the first pair is the teaching and koinonia. That seeking after God, seeking after God in our relationship with one another, sharing in one another's another's wisdom, is actually what brings us into a fulfilling life together. That knowing Jesus helps us know others, and vice versa. Koinonia is not about fitting in. It's longing. And those two things are very different. Fitting in is about being the same. Belonging is about being yourself and being known, seeing another self who is different from you, knowing them, loving them. And so from the teachings, from pursuing this knowledge of God, we are invited into a life together with those who pursue it with us. Not that we might all be the same, but that we might all belong to one another in our beautiful, unique differences. From there, we move to the third component, breaking bread. Jesus loved food. It's all over the Gospels. Jesus loved to eat with people. And I think part of this is about material provision, that God knows what we need, and God wants to provide what we need. God knows that we need one another and wants us to provide to one another. And so we can't merely say, oh, I'll pray for you. We say, I'll pray for you. Here's some tea. We get nourishment through breaking bread together, materially and spiritually. We know from the scriptures 
that we cannot live on bread alone, and yet Jesus asks us to eat bread. We also live on the word of God, but what else? The breaking of bread in the early church teaches us that we live and are nourished through the sharing of meals, not only because we are hungry, but because we are hungry. Not only because we need to eat, but because we need to be filled. And so, when we break bread together, we are nourished. I'd like to note, as I did during communion a few weeks ago, that everything shared must first be broken. And so, it is an important phrase in mind, the breaking of the bread. We don't get to keep things whole and contained. Not if we want to give them away. They must be broken open. We must break our open to be with one another. And the paired practice with the breaking of the bread is the prayers. It is listed in scripture as the prayers, which refers to a couple of things. It refers to ritual practice, worship, probably in the temple, which is corporate, but also in the home, intimate. It's about going to spaces of worship together and having a collective experience of God and also having more private, intimate connections with God, not only on our own, but also with small groups of others, seeking God not just in our heads, but in our hearts through acts of worship, being in prayer with one another and for one another, inviting the relationship of community into our most intimate practices with God. Pursuing God, learning God, draws us in towards one another. And as we are drawn in toward one another through shared meals and life together, we are then drawn back to bring those relationships into our most intimate spaces with God through prayer and worship. So that's how the early church did it. Another nice story. How are we supposed to do that? Things are different right now, clearly. It's really hard to share a meal these days in ways that are really painful. So what are we to do to become a community of radical generosity and abundance? Well, I think those four items are a pretty good place to start. The teachings. This is something you're practicing right now by being here with others listening to this sermon. But it's also in the books you read, in spending time wrestling with your Bible. It's in any exploration you bring to your relationship with God, seeking to know God, seeking to love God. We cannot love what we do not know. And so in our, our project of love for the world, we want to know the world more intimately. And in our path of loving God, we need to seek to know who they are, what makes their heart beat. And so we do that through the teachings, through our curiosity, through the late-night conversations about, what do you think about? Or, did anyone ever tell you this? Do you think that was weird? It's through these practices where we engage with one another, with the history of the church, to find God in the teachings. But that brings us necessarily into koinonia, this project of doing life together, the love-seeking as a community, because this is not meant to be a solitary activity. It's what happens when you comment live on these videos, and it is why, though I love the magic of technology and I bless you to receive this whenever you can and do, it is why I I'm delighted when anyone can join live in person to know that though we are separated across space, we are together in one time, commenting, receiving the word, receiving the teachings, and teaching one another in comments. Koinonia happens through the squad page as we share our prayer requests and our day-to-day -day activities and the protests that we're going to go to and the memes that gave us life that day. The squad page is a place of koinonia and fellowship. 
Koinonia happens during Echo, where we wrestle with the scriptures together on Wednesday nights, now just for one hour. We spend in meditation and inquiry and curiosity, and we listen to how God is speaking to others. And in so doing, we are drawn in close. Koinonia happens through the Social Justice Book Club as the social justice team brings in other holy texts for us to wrestle with and digest, to engage one another on the issues of justice in our world. Koinonia happens on the fourth Friday of the month when we have our fun fest, whatever that is, at any given time. This month, we'll be gathering on the lawn for a socially distanced, um, large-scale lawn projection of the best musical, Rent. Don't fight me on that. There are a lot of other best musicals. But as we do this life together, we find that we are drawn in towards one another and God. How are you called to be intimate and do life with community? There have been many iterations of this in the past. There was a group called Z and D for a while which was Zhao's Dungeons and Dragons Club. Just the other day, a community member posted about wanting to go disc golfing together, to be socially distanced outside doing an activity that he loved with Zhao. There have been crafting parties, there have watch parties. What do you love that you could put out there in faithfulness and know that it will draw you into the community that draws you more into God. Breaking of bread is really hard now. This third one. We do it every time we have communion during service. And we have continued doing communion even in quarantine. But we break bread together. But what else can we do to break bread together? I have this fantasy of virtual dinner parties, ways that we can gather over meals, nourishing ourselves and one another, not only with what we've prepared, but also with our company. The thing about dinner parties, the thing about breaking bread, is that it's not only what we receive from one another, but what we give that gives us life. Breaking bread is an act of generosity. Traditionally, when you host a meal, you provide for your guests. And also, traditionally, when you are a guest, you come with a gift. This kind of breaking of bread is an exchange of generosity. You offer your bread to one another. What bread do you have to offer your community here and now? How are you breaking your bread so that it may be shared? How can you give generously, materially, spiritually, and emotionally? That generosity of breaking our bread and offering it to one another leads us back into the prayers, those times of worship. It is hard during online worship for church not to become a TV show. I feel this even as we are making it, like we're producing some sort of television program that then, you know, just gets viewed and consumed. But worship is not something to be consumed. It's something to offer yourself to, to be given to, to get swept up in. How many of you sing out loud at home along with the music? How many of you move in your bodies in ways that are not just about getting the tea kettle or answering the door, but are about being moved by worship. These are things that we need to have even more intention with as we are in quarantine. Sing. Sing out loud. Sing as loud as you can during the music. Talk back. Write in comments. 
Journal, draw, stand up, lay down on the floor as you feel moved. Allow worship to carry you into a new space, to connect you across space with all those who worship with you and with God, with the Holy Spirit who has given you the faith to believe that this is a real thing, that you are not just watching something happening, but you are doing something when you come to worship. We need to worship intimately. We need to do so at the temple, which is now Zoom and Facebook Live and YouTube. But we also need to worship intimately. We need to find those forms of personal prayer and worship to connect with one another, to pray for each other. One of the ways that we can do this is to have prayer partners. One other person in this community that you commit to pray for and with over whatever technology you prefer or masked in a park, but committing yourself to the prayers, not just in your own faith, but in your own community, in your koinonia, a breaking of yourself to share and be nourished. It is from these practices, the teaching, the community, the breaking of bread, and our worship, that we find the power of the Spirit to experience abundance and pour out to one another, to give and live generously, receiving the abundance of the people of God. This is the picture of the early church. Worshipfulness, connection, intimacy, friendship, provision, and outpouring of abundance into the community and the world through a trust in God's willingness to give back to you. This is the kind of church we are called to be. This is the kind of people we are called to be. Because this feels so far, we need to take little steps. We've prepared a kind of radical community survey to help you take some action steps if you are feeling so moved. A commitment or even just an inquiry around some of these fundamental practices that will bring us into a life of radical generosity and abundance. First, you can ask more about baptism if you'd like to say, I'm in, and invite your faith and the Holy Spirit to guide you into a new way of being. Second, to participate in the breaking of bread, you can indicate your interest in a virtual dinner party and we will do our best to connect with one another and find ways to share. Next, you can indicate if you'd like a prayer partner, another person to be with you on this journey, to practice the prayers in a way that brings you into deeper fellowship, to be someone you pray for and who prays for you, that reciprocal generosity that builds community, this doing life together with abundance. We trust that those kinds of practices will make us good sharers. And so there are two more options on this form. One is to help with some of the projects we already have here, and the other is to help sustain this community materially. Again, I want to note back that the ideal in this text is that we all sell our stuff that we give to one another exactly as we have need, that we trust the community through the power of the Spirit of God to meet every need we have. And that's a far cry from the world that we live in. So what is one step that you are called to take toward that? What's one way that you can move out of scarcity into abundance? Two of the material ways that you can give that are indicated on this form are to give to the depot, and to give financially to the church. Giving to the depot, you can support by being in person, helping us staff this place. The depot reminds me of Standing Rock, community activists who are giving themselves, pouring their bodies into the streets, show up, and they walk through this space that we call home, and they often marvel. They say, how much can I take? And we say, it's all for you. Curiously, they then are even more careful not to take too much so that there will be enough for the next who come. 
It is a beautiful manifestation of generosity turning into abundance. And you can be part of that physically if you are able to take a shift, take a shift regularly and help us keep this place open so that people can do that. Or if you'd like to give materially by donating the most needed items, which frankly are usually potato chips. But if you would like to give more to that program indicated on the survey. And finally, giving intentionally to this church community, to Zao financially. If you would like to begin giving, or if you would like to give more intentionally, you can indicate that on this forum as well. Recently on a forum, I was hearing that folks weren't sure where the money went when they gave to their church. It goes to this. We don't have a lot, and in fact, we are not yet self-sustaining. We are operating on grants and money from a denomination that will stop giving us money pretty soon. Every dollar that comes in makes this project of Zao possible. It's an effort in community building, in seeking God, in creating spaces for the teachings, for the breaking of bread, for koinonia, and for worship. It is allowing for the space to contemplate and to be sent out. It is providing the very real material needs we have to do this virtually and to make it into where, whatever spaces and places you are in right now. We have great need. Zhao has great need. And it would be very easy to go to a place of scarcity. But we are trusting in the abundance of God and trying to live generously, devoting ourselves to these practices that cultivate a community of radical generosity and abundance, not through our own power, but through the power of the Spirit who comes upon us and allows us to experience hope beyond what feels possible now. Even if you are having a hard time, you're a good sharer. God made you that way. How can your sharing, your generosity, open up for you a world of community, connection, solidarity, and abundance? Pray with me. God, in a world where it feels like there is never enough, help us to see the abundance you have given generously to us and help us to pour it out that it may multiply, that it may bless your people and all creation, and in so doing that it can double back to greet us with joy and gifts. Amen.